But when we arrived at the Bible together, a pastor stood before the congregation. The pastor was black and from the neighborhood. The pastor was wise, inclusive, and passionate about the dignity and future of his neighbors. But at this time, what seemed shocking to me about the pastor was she was a woman. Goes quiet there. Keep in mind, as an exile who was entrenched in evangelical conservative roots, this was my first time experiencing something like this. At the moment, something went, off, something went off in my body. The best way to describe can be compared to an alarm system going off in the wee hours of the night. I know most of us had those moments. Like, what is going on? Why is my body responding this way? Somewhere along my spiritual development, my spiritual leaders indirectly taught me not to accept nor trust the teachings of a woman. The only narrow way to perceive women leading and functioning in the church was through worship, family ministries, women conferences and retreats, and supporting the lead pastor. I will hear comments like, you can empower her in small ways or give her opportunities to teach and shepherd a church, but don't you dare put her behind the pulpit to teach the Bible. This is what I was carrying inside my body. On one hand, I held this fragile, rigid American tradition of men only, no girls allowed theology. And on the other hand, I held this genuine conviction from the Spirit because the things this pastor spoke about Jesus' character were true. So what do I do, Jesus? Do I submit to the leadership and influence of your spirit through women? Or do I hold fast to tradition and question everything they do in your name? What about you? Have you ever long, have you long had a sense that women should be fully empowered to lead in the church? Or do you hold fast to the tradition that all women should not lead and the church should be only led by men? Hold that question. As we journey through Acts 16, 11 through 15, I encourage you to wrestle with the text and to hold fast to that question. So beginning in verse 11, Luke starts by saying this. From Troas, should it come up on the screen? Yes, it does. Not here, but that's okay. I got it on my notes. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Nepalus. From there, we traveled to Philippi a Roman colony, the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. This is the first time Paul and the others have stepped foot on the continent of Europe. Philippi was a wealthy and flourishing city, strategically placed on a primary trade route between Byzantium and the city of Rome. It was known for its local gold mines, its free pole and land tax. As a city of the Roman Empire, Philippi had many of the same features 
as the city of Rome. It had forums, many, many gymnasiums, uh, a marketplace, and libraries, and various temples dedicated to Greek gods. Philippi, in short, intended to be a miniature version of Rome. This was a new city where the Holy Spirit brought them. As they looked to get settled in Philippi, they stayed in inns since they had no community or connections there. They toured parts of the city to get acquainted with it and also to hopefully find a Jewish synagogue. This was the normal strategy for Paul in every city he visited, but something was missing in Philippi. Paul and apostles would quickly learn that no local Jewish synagogue existed in the city. And according to the Roman law, Jewish people were required to have at least 10 men in order to establish a synagogue. And so they could not find any Jewish men gathered together on the Sabbath. When I was reading this, I felt the question of, of being out of place. I don't know about any of you, have you ever been out of place in a new setting? Ms. Ms. Karen does. I'm sure Paul felt the way, the same way. He must have asked himself the question, where are my people? In fact, where are all the Jewish men? This is one of those Holy Spirit, what are you doing kind of moments. Why have you sent us here and where are the Jewish men? But if we learn anything about Paul, we know that he held his plans loosely for the sake of the gospel and grew to be adaptable to the stirrings of the Spirit. So, like we did last week, change your plans again. What next, Holy Spirit? So, for Paul and the others to stay in Philippi for several days and to get acquainted with the city, they must have heard that some people who practiced Jewish customs were outside the city. And so they travel outside the city gates and hoping to find Jewish men praying together. Luke says, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gates to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Rivers were often used for two significant reasons. One, in various Roman colony cities, rivers were used for foreign cults, especially small ones since they did not have a bigger kind of community uh, in the city of Rome. And two, Jewish and God-fearers would assemble near rivers to facilitate ceremonial and ritual cleansing. So when Paul drew back the branches to see who was near the riverbank, he did not identify any Jewish men. Instead, they could only find a group of Jewish and God-fearing Greek women praying outside the city gates. Some may say this is the ultimate letdown. Woman, oh my gosh. <laughs> Was Paul disappointed with the whole, when the Holy Spirit led him to a group of praying women? Did he fear the feminization of the church in Philippi? Was he looking for a few good men to take over this new ministry that was over with women? And where is the man that was spoken about in this story before? Had the Holy Spirit made some terrible mistake? Luke does not give us 
Paul's raw emotion. But instead, Luke tells us that Paul sat down. And if we know anything about rabbi culture, this is the way that they taught their disciples. They sat down. So he sat down and began speaking to these women who gathered there. And as Paul taught these women, one of them seemed to be listening. It was Lydia who was intrigued by the gospel message. Lydia says it was the Lord who opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord opened her heart. Clearly, the Spirit of God is at work here. Clearly, the Spirit of God intended for them to travel to Philippi. He must have her to see, to understand, and to grasp the scriptures in a new way that included her, her gender, her leadership, and her gifting. He didn't seem bothered or frightened by the social fears and patriarchal boundaries. Instead, he sees her in the band of women as a valuable piece to establish a beachhead for the gospel in Philippi. But who is this Lydia that caught the eyes and attention of Yahweh? In verse 14, we are given several pieces of information about Lydia. We are told her name, that she is a dealer in purple cloth, that she's an immigrant originally from Tyrtha, and that she is a worship worshiper of God. There is so much spiritual meat in this passage here, but let's start with her name. Lydia's name was not an uncommon one. It was a common nickname often given to slaves or free slaves who were from her city. So the name Lydia was a way to identify her as someone from a particular region. Some scholars suggest that Lydia was once a slave who had been freed and perhaps a widow woman. If Lydia was a free woman, she would continue to work as a trade agent in her former slave owner's businesses. So by this period, like slave men, women were often engaged in business. They were promoted to be managers, empowered to control the business, and granted a percentage of the business revenue. Most scholars believe that Lydia was a very wealthy and successful businesswoman who sold purple. So it was a great career for Lydia to come from a place known for its production of dyes and to be sent to Philippi to run an export business moving purple dye goods between the two places. If anyone chose this trade, they would easily become prosperous, especially for a woman who is living under a very hyper-masculine culture. Purple cloth was a status symbol. It was the only, the wealthy, who wore garments dyed and trimmed with purple. It was often found in Caesar's household and found on the very cross of Jesus as a sign of mockery. Lydia's wealth is also indicated by the fact that she seems to be the owner and mistress of her own home. Roman, uh, verse 15 says, when she and the members of our household were baptized, she invited us to her home. Lydia uses her own initiative and doesn't consult a male relative. 
There is no mention of a husband or a father in her story. She is the head of her home. Yeah, it's good. I read the story and I was just like, man, this, this girl got it made. She has a, the space and the means to support herself, her household, and now Paul. Now, if we know anything about the Jewish patriarchal, patriarchal structure, this is unusual. Normally, it would be the men who were the head of the household, not the women. It was the men who provided stability and provision for the entire family, the mom, the brother, the sisters, the uncles, the aunts, the cousins, not the other way around. This ancient system was everything in Eastern culture. You trusted the man enough in your family to wrap your identity around him, around his work, and around everything that he can provide for you. But Lydia has her own home. She's able to convert her, her whole family to Christianity. So for Lydia to ask this in verse 15 is both courageous and scandalous. She says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. This direct ask was not an easy invitation for Paul. Again, he and the others, before they met Lydia, they stayed in inns. And if we know anything about inns, they were very dangerous spots to go to. This is like a bad review on Airbnbs. You will not go to inns when you're in Eastern world. But they were considered, for, they were considered hot spots for robbery, prostitution, and cult worship. Also, her direct acts threatens Paul's traditions. For prominent conservative Jewish teachers, speaking to women didn't normally happen. And if a Jewish teacher attracted too many female followers, your enemies will discredit you and deem your ministry as suspicious. Even for us, Lydia's direct acts to Paul threatens the great Billy Graham code of conduct for pastors and ministry leaders who are told not to spend time alone with women to whom they are married to. Again, this is a major red flag. It was courageous for Lydia to invite them into her home too, for her to host meetings in her home where they worship a new Jesus, Jewish Messiah, and not the emperor or any respectable pagan gods could have ruined her reputation and her business, but she did it anyway. In many cases, hospitality was a major value in Judaism. It was considered an honor to provide hospitality for a man or woman or God. Lydia is not Jewish, and yet she provides tremendous hospitality despite the danger of her job and career. She never retracted her offer. Luke says that she persuaded the men, meaning she presented a compelling argument to hold host these men. And so, for the sake of the gospel, Paul chooses to break some traditional gender boundaries because he trusted the Holy Spirit, which led to a beautiful empowerment of women much needed leadership in the church. Saying yes to Lydia's offer 
had a much bigger and greater impact than he can ever imagine. And here's why. Lydia's access to wealth and resources undoubtedly contributed significantly to Paul's missionary needs. In Paul's letter to the Philippian church, he writes to thank them for supporting his ministry, and not just for prayer, but with a financial gift. Paul says to the Philippian church, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. The church in Philippi was not only founded by a woman, but its leadership continued in the hands of a woman. In addition to that, Lydia, Lydia became a prominent leader of her own household church in Europe. Her home will become the place of refuge, solidarity, and transformation for new believers living under the terror of Roman Empire. Lydia would do great things for the kingdom of God. So how might this story speak to our reality as a faith community? How might the Spirit be nudging us to lean in a little closer and deeper into becoming more like Jesus? Well, women have contributed much to the ministry of the church throughout his history. However, their role in this area has never been free from controversy. For decades, thousands of ongoing debates and opinions among Jesus followers have been raised about their role within the church. Like many, I grew up with the worldview that men and women are equal, but God has assigned them to particular gender roles relating to the home and to the church. I never really questioned this structure, and I became ignorant of its subtle restrictions to women from serving in certain, serving in certain church leadership roles. I never saw an, an alternative model that created a space for both men and women to fully thrive in their gifting without a gender hierarchy. In this case, I now realize that the goal become less about Jesus and more about power. The powers behind this system has excused, excused this gender discrimination based on 1 Timothy 2, where Paul is telling Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority. This popular verse has been misused and misinterpreted and misunderstood. It has been used to silence the voices of women and used as a weapon to keep an all-male church leadership structure. Contextually, this makes sense. Paul was writing to Timothy, who was pastoring in Ephesus. Ephesus has a temple of Artemis in it, and the temple of Artemis kind of empowered a she-woman-man-hating club. So it's possible that the women were coming into the church, receiving education, and trying to observe authority over everyone else. What the passage is not doing is giving a for all time, all place command that women should not teach because they would contradict the rest of Paul's ministry in the New Testament. 
Again, this corrupt attitude towards women is a symptom of much deeper problem that is allowing much of the modern church into a state of irrelevance. Too often we project the image of sexist, authoritarian institution trying to teach people, trying to, trying to send people back to the 18th century cultural values rather than the vibrant, living, servant community of the king, a people who show the way forward into God's new creation. What the body of believers needs is men and women like Paul and Lydia, who are both willing to risk their status, their power, and to break traditions if needed for the sake of the gospel, so that others in God's family may thrive and flourish. The body of believers needs men and women like Paul and Lydia who are willing to trust the leadership of the Holy Spirit even when it's messy. The body of believers needs men and women like Paul and Lydia who will rise alongside to fight the good fight of faith together. And what will come from this act of dismantling and rebuilding is a collective kingdom-like flourishing the type of flourishing that emerges, a new Christian world that eliminates gender hierarchies because we are all one in Christ. This is why Garden City believes in the value of empowerment, where we can all live in the fullness of our gifting, where there is not one over the other, but where we all can all flourish in our gifting. We don't want just to this, communicate this only from the pulpit, but we want to continue to practice this and work on different ways of integrating women into uh, the leadership of Garden City. We had Julia up here at one moment, and she's a phenomenal teacher. Um, we had Amanda. We had different women up here leading the church, and I think they bring something to... God's kingdom um, just as much as men bring God, uh, goodness to God's kingdom as well. Because at the end of it, it would all be worth it. At the end of it, it will all be worth it for the kingdom of Christ. So let us pray. Jesus, we just come before you. And we, uh, Lord Jesus, we just ask you for, um, for harmony amongst your body. That we'll be able to see the goodness in each other. And we'll be able to empower one another towards um, your purpose and towards your kingdom. Jesus, we ask that you would uh, continue to inspire us to learn from one another, to be like your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.